0: All right, please don't hold it against me that I'm from San Francisco, and Nick called me a yahoo, so that's what <laughs> everyone thinks. Uh, hey, uh, let me read scripture this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, so you can turn there. That is on page 1675 in your pew Bible. If you are looking for that, uh, the Bible's a big book. If you're new to it, it's easier if you have page numbers. And we are going to be in Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 10 to 13. Oh, one other thing before we read scripture is, uh, so some of you know this, many of you know this, some of you don't. I was an intern here about 11 years ago. And so if you are thinking about maybe interning here, I highly, 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 highly recommend it, and you should sign up for the intern lunch and go and learn about it, and then you should be an intern here. And it's great, even if, whether you're thinking about vocational ministry or you just want to be of great service in the local church. Um, it will be highly good for you. So, all right, Philippians 4, <clears throat> starting in verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so I, I love to study history. Uh, I was a history major in college, and there's maybe no figure in English history that has captured me more than King Henry VIII. Now, if you don't know who King Henry VIII is, he's very famous for having a whole lot of wives and making divorce legal in the English church. And um, But what captures me about him is not that he was such a great man. He was not. He was actually a really terrible man. However, he is a an Unparalleled, or seemingly unparalleled, tragic figure. He, at the close of Henry's life, he spent. It was revealed he spent all his years going to unending lengths and expense to, expense to find contentment in life, which just forever stayed out of his grasp. I mean, he was born. So he was born to Henry the Seventh, right? He's Henry the Born to Henry the Seventh. And uh, Henry VII had had gotten the throne for him, and uh, and then Henry VII died, and Henry VIII was 17 years old when he took over the throne. And despite being a king, he spent the first many years of his uh, reign trying to lay his hands on as much pleasure as he possibly could. And you can imagine what that might mean. And uh, and he did that, and it, hoping it would make him content. But it didn't make him content. He was still very discontent in his life. And so then he started kind of turning and looking. So then he tried to find love and marriage. And he very famously divorced his wife, Catherine of Aragon, Aragorn. And then... then um, And and then married Anne Boleyn, who then he beheaded. And then there were some other wives, who some of whom he divorced, and some of whom, most of whom he killed. And then one of them outlived him, which was great for her, lucky her. And uh, but that didn't really work. And so then he. Um, then he, he couldn't do that, so then he really wanted power. The older he got, the more he realized, you know, I'm, I'm over this kingdom, but I want to, like, I want to, let's invade France, and let's do some things. I, I need some more power. And so he tried to get power, and he got some, but not quite enough. And then he really wanted prestige and respect, and that sort of devolved into him realizing in the later years of his life that he really wanted to leave a legacy behind him, especially in the form of, a Tudor dynasty that would outlive him in the form of many, many, many sons. However, very famously, he had a very difficult time having sons that survived. And, uh, and when he died, he had one son who was nine years old and who six years later, before he was old enough to take the throne, died himself, Edward, and his, then there was a lot of bloodshed and his dynasty ended after the next generation. But it it was sort of like when his son died, it it was sort of this this last, final, post-mortem failure of Henry's search for contentment in life. I mean, it, it was almost a grace that his son died after him, right? But although half a millennium has moved since then and passed since Henry's failed attempt, our modern search for contentment is actually very similar to this. And we can learn a lot from that. It seems just as unending, as unsuccessful, and honestly as tragic as Henry's. Just not quite as famous. Hey, but 21st century people, many of you, many of me, I have been caught in this, go to great lengths to find contentment. Some people spend long hours at work in the hopes of having contentment in retirement. Some spend countless dollars buying things they don't need that they think will make them content and happy if they just have that one more toy. Or they swipe through dating app after dating app after dating app thinking that if they just could find the one right person, then that'll be, they'll be content. And then others leave their spouses and their family thinking that will make them content. Some move across the country or seek out power or go on extravagant vacations. Others, others try to achieve some kind of a spiritual awakening. That will make them content. And then, of course, some others just have another drink, right? Take another hit. Hoping that that one will do the trick. And whatever you, whatever it, you seem to try, no matter how great a lengths we go to, it seems like that contentment eludes us. It's always just on the horizon, just out of grasp. And every once in a while, every once in a while, you maybe have a moment. You catch a glimpse of that contentment, right? You're sitting out in the, by the lake in the summer. That's my moment anyway. And, right, and it feels like there's like this momentary contentment. And then it quickly escapes again. And it, I think it, it ought to leave us wondering if contentment is even really possible in this world. But the Apostle Paul says in our passage this morning That it is possible But like that a car driving in the wrong direction Will, go, will kick and drive as far as it wants But will, will never reach its destination But there is good news Paul, Paul says that contentment The contentment you long for Is actually much closer than you think And Paul implores us this morning To learn contentment To learn contentment And, it, and he reveals four truths will help us learn to be people who are content. So the first truth we find in this passage is that contentment is something that is learned. It's not achieved. It's not obtained. It's not attained. In verse 11, Paul says that he has learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And then in the next verse, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Right? So Paul didn't attain contentment through the curating of his circumstances, nor did he obtain it through the collection of resources. He learned it. Here's the problem, though. Our, the way our culture views contentment is really in one of three ways. So the first way is what I like to call the competitive view of contentment, which is the view that you should never be content, because content is akin to settling, and you should never settle, right? And so, so contentment's not a virtue. You shouldn't lower your standards. Contentment is for losers. You should always strive for more and don't let anyone hold you down. Keep pushing until you get everything you ever wanted and then go get more, right? You got to win. You got to win in life. And now there's a difference, I think, between, as we're going to see, between contentment and then just kind of passive acceptance of your circumstances. That's not what Paul's arguing for here. But the competitive view of contentment is problematic because it creates people who literally are never content, by definition are never content. So if you want to be a content person, That's not going to get you there, right, by definition. Now, the second idea that you can obtain is the idea that you can obtain contentment by achieving the right mix of circumstances and or resources, right? So this is the view that said if I just had a little more space in my home, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a spouse, if I just had kids, if I just could get this promotion, or if I just had this much money in the bank, if I could just get better from this thing. If, if, if there's just this one little thing, or these this series of things that I could change, and these circumstances would be a little different, and I could collect these resources in this amount, and this abundance, then I would be content. Now, most people are not willing to say that that's what they believe out loud. And yet, most of us, and I'll admit I'm one of them, function this way a lot of the time. We function as if this is true. Right, So for instance, I have fished all my life And yet, about seven years ago I went fishing with a tournament bass fisherman guy And I learned that fishing is a skill and It has nothing to do with luck And that you can learn to be a great fisherman And that t- catching 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 fish in a day Or 100 fish in a day Is actually possible if you know what you're doing And I, this blew my mind And I thought, okay, great I'm going to learn this And so I started watching all the videos I could Talking to all the people I could And I learned that If you want to be successful fishing Different baits and different conditions You need some different rods They all do different things My wife said they're all the same They're not all the same They're all different Right? And I had one I had one rod And I said okay I gotta get You know first I started watching videos I was like I need three or four Just three or four If I have three or four I can do kind of all the things And then I was like well there's, there's, this rod would be, if I get this rod, then I can do this too. And then I'll have, I can tie on multiple crankbaits and that'll be great. Right? And, and, uh, and there were multiple times in this process where I said to my wife, listen, this is the last, this is the last one. This is the last rod I need. I don't need any more after this. Right? right? Like after this, I'm good. And she doesn't believe that lie anymore. And we have a wall in our garage. that has a lot more than six or seven rods on it. But this is kind of the way that contentment works, right? Contentment's kind of like that. The the circumstances, like as you get circumstances or resources right, it just kind of flees on you. And there's a couple of reasons. Partially, it's because we naturally are going to want more. Like, I want more rods just because it's fun to buy fishing rods, right? Like, like there is something to that. That no matter what, how much we have, that there's a basic component of our human condition that, that can be demonstrated at almost every point in human history that we're always going to want more than we have. But there's another reason that I think is maybe even more driving, which is that circumstances change over time. So you think you have enough and then there's a global pandemic and crippling inflation. And then all of a sudden you don't have enough or you don't feel like you have enough. You think you're good and then you get that diagnosis or that news. And so the problem with trying to obtain contentment through the right mix of resources and the right mix of circumstances is that circumstances and resources change. We live in a dynamic world. And so if we, believe can, if we believe to be content, everything must be getting better, right? Like every day is going to be a little bit better than the next and a little bit of the next. We're going to get 1% better every day. And then at the end of the year, it's going to be like so much, like the percentage-wise better, it's going to be great. And, but sometimes life gets worse, doesn't it? Sometimes suffering happens to everyone And that's a normal part of life it's, it's something that everyone everywhere is going to experience at some point And the degree of that suffering and the length of that suffering Is going to be different for different people But it's coming if it hasn't hit you already And so if you're trying to achieve contentment by eliminating suffering and maximizing pleasure through the attainment of resources and the right circumstances, you are in for some devastating disappointment and pain in your future. And you will find yourself eventually extraordinarily discontent, even if you're content at the moment. It won't last. Which leads me to the third way our culture thinks about contentment, which is becoming or realizing that you are self-reliant. So my son, uh, I have a two-year-old son, or almost two, and he is incredibly into Moana right now. And he was sick last week, which meant I watched Moana a lot. And all those songs have been in my, stuck in my head for a week. He's been, I, I, we left him at home. He's been gone for four days. I'm still singing Moana songs in my head. It's awful. But if you haven't seen it, anyway, uh, if you haven't seen it, the first time, I really liked it. Anyway, they're very, they're very lovely songs, but they're also catchy and then awful. Um, so if you haven't seen it, Moana is this, this Hawaiian princess who's supposed to be content living on her island. She's going to be the, the, the queen who takes over and lead her people, but she's not content living on the island. She, there's something inside of her that just, she's got to sail on the sea. And then through the course of the movie, she discovers that this is who she is. Her ancestors are voyagers. It's inside of her. She's a voyager, right? And she goes on this great adventure, and she doesn't think that she can do, that she has like inside of her what she needs to do the thing and restore the heart of Tafiti, And it's, anyway... <laughs> I know a lot about this movie now And Right, but then she discovers Like through the course of the movie She discovers, I am Moana Right, and then Yeah, thank you and, and all she ever needed was It was always right inside of her The whole time And I think this is Sometimes this is how people think about contentment Sorry, that's my fault, I yelled um, Sometimes this is how we think about contentment That it's just, like it's inside of us Like if we can just unlock it If we can just be true to ourselves, we'll find contentment. And this view is actually less shallow than the view, like, if I can just, like, accumulate enough stuff. But it's still problematic because because it turns out to be false. Turns out you don't need just yourself to be content. It turns out that you're not actually enough. And at some point in your life, Right like this is a this is a really great thought when you're 22. I probably thought this when I was 22. But like at some point in your life you, this will become extraordinarily painful. Right? It's really nice in a Disney movie because it works and then every they discover who they are and it's all positive, but in real life discovering you who you are is some sometimes very positive. You discover some amazing things about yourself and you are you are an amazing human being made in the image of God. And yet Sometimes you find out things about yourself that are terrible, and mean, and hurtful, and broken, and ugly, and that are really negative. And if you are trying to base your contentment on what you find inside yourself, there there are going to be moments in your life where you realize you are not enough, and that is going to break you. You are going to be discontent and stuck. And so Paul says that true contentment can't be found in, un- in an unwillingness to be content. It can't be found in the right set of circumstances or recesses, and it can't be found inside of yourself. It ha- contentment has to be learned, and learned in a way that is outside of yourself and yet does not, does not, is not about the accumulation of the right things. And so what's the secret to contentment? Well, Paul tells us. He says here in this text and then elsewhere that contentment is learned by becoming connected to Jesus. The, the like more religious way to say this or the doctrine of this is the union with Christ. Right? But all that means is we, we become intimately connected with Jesus. Right? So he says here that you, he can be content in every situation, good and bad, through him who gives me strength. That is Jesus. He's referring to Jesus here. And how does Jesus give Paul strength? It is through union with, with Jesus. This idea that your life has become so intertwined, so interconnected with the life of Jesus that that you actually can't be separated. And that the more that that happens, the more that you will find the secret to contentment. So Paul states in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3, he says, "'For you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.'" And so in some real sense, your, your life is bound up with the life of Jesus. Or the thing that makes you alive is Jesus If you have placed your faith in Jesus And specifically, it is the Holy Spirit living inside of you Right? This thing that strengthens you So before he ascended into heaven Jesus told us, you will receive my power When the Holy Spirit comes on you And you will be my witnesses In Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria And to the ends of the earth, right? So you don't have to find strength To be content inside of yourself Somewhere it isn't there you don't have to find strength to be content in a constant curation of your external circumstances. Jesus can give you the strength to be content no matter what is going on in your life. Right? For Paul, Paul's writing this from the, in the context of a Roman prison, which is not a nice place to be. And he says he can be content there. Does that mean he wants to be there? No! Paul does not want to be in prison. He's made that pretty clear. He didn't want to be in need, but he was in need. He was hungry. He did live in want. He says that, he, I lived in want. You know what that means? It means he wanted something different. And yet, he could want something different and be content at the same time. Be perfectly content. Because he could see that Jesus was at work in his life. He could see his own heart changing inside. He could see how his imprisonment was leading to the advancement of the gospel with the guards around him and through the writing of books like Philippians to other Christians in other places and how it was encouraging them and leading them to, to live boldly for the gospel. It's not that he didn't want to improve his worldly circumstances, of course he did. It's that if his worldly circumstances didn't improve, he'd be fine. He, it wasn't going to break him. He may not have wanted to be in that jail cell, but he was not, also not sitting in it, wallowing in self-pity. Right? He, he was, by the grace of God and the strength of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, going to be content, however God might use him, even if it meant rotting in a Roman prison the rest of his life. This is how Paul can say, he says earlier in the book, right, in chapter 1, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? So what do you saying? For rich or for poor, for sickness and health, right? Whether I live or die, I'm content. I'm good. I'm happy with that. Our theologian Gordon Fee says it this way. He says, being conformed to Christ's death so as to attain the resurrection raises God's people above the dictates of either want or plenty. Right? So when I go fishing with my dad, if I don't catch a single fish— It's fine. Got to spend the whole day with my dad fishing. If I catch a hundred fish, it's great. I got to do it with my dad. That's kind of what Paul is getting at here. We can be content in every circumstances because we are with Jesus in those circumstances. And his presence with us, the Spirit of God that has entered into us and is transforming us and is using us for his glory. And he is at work in us, he's partnering with us. In his work in the world. And, and Paul's saying, listen, how great is that? What, what could be better than partnering in the work of the gospel? Even if it's happening in a crummy circumstance. Even if I just can't seem to catch a break. It's the same rationale that the Apostle James uses when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work in you, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Even when we suffer, especially when we suffer, Jesus is working in us so we can be content in that suffering. Our second son is named James because um, we went through an adoption process. that was incredibly painful. And, and we learned to be content. We had to learn to be content in that. And some of you are suffering. Some of you are lonely or hurting or anxious or depressed or you recently got devastating news or you lost a loved one, or you're in debilitating chronic pain still, you're working at a job you wish you weren't, that you hate going to in the morning, or you're constantly humiliated or at odds with people in your family. Or even, even if your life just feels like it's not as good as I thought it was going to be when I dreamed about it when I was 18. And in those moments, contentment can feel like a pipe dream, right? But if you believe in Jesus, he can use even your suffering to do a beautiful work, to create in you a more full version of yourself, the kind of person he created you to be in the first place, and the kind of person you've always wanted to be. And you can experience the power of being intimately connected to Jesus, and then God will use your suffering to help other people and produce something beautiful through you in the world. Which is the the more religious way to say that, is Jesus can redeem your suffering. And if you understand that, and if you can see that, and you, you are deeply connected with, the, with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit does that work in your life, and you begin to build up experiences, multiple experiences of God actually doing that through your suffering, you can learn to be content even in terrible circumstances like Paul did in a Roman prison. And by the way, there's a flip side of this too, because that's the suffering side, but there's another side, that we can, be, we can learn to be content in times of plenty. Also, Paul wasn't just content in his hunger. He was also content when he was well-fed. And that might seem obvious, of course, right? Who's not, who lo- doesn't love to be well-fed? I went to a Brazilian steakhouse recently, and it was great. Also, it's how people it's how, like, ate like a king in the Middle Ages, and that's how, why they all had gout. But anyway, right? But the thing is, Abundance and wealth and security has a way of producing discontent in us, right? You can have everything you've ever wanted and still be extraordinarily discontent, can't you? And the, the, the reason is, it's the same problem that people have in humble circumstances or suffering situations. It's, that it's this failure to focus on Jesus and how he's blessing you and how He is using that blessing and using that abundance for your good and the good of other people around you. And this is a danger. You're actually more likely to stop thinking about Jesus in the moments of your abundance. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God commands his people, when you get into the land, don't forget about me when you have abundance. Because that's what they're going to do. And of course, they do that over and over and over again. That's the basic story of the Old Testament. And yet, if we would remember God in our times of abundance, we would be able to be content in that. Not feeling the need to protect it and guard it from other people, or the need to get more, or the need to get less. We don't have to feel guilty about our abundance either, right? Paul says you can be perfectly content in it. We can see the graciousness and the generosity of God to us in those times, which teaches us contentment that's not based on that abundance, but is based on the character of God. A contentment that is not rooted in abundance, but in how Jesus is using that abundance to teach us something about the character of God And then how he is using that abundance to, help to, the, to include us In part of his mission and work in the world To draw people to himself Right? It's the dignity of using that abundance That wealth, the resources, or time, or emotional energy, or joy, or anything else For the good of other people And so Christians don't seek out suffering Nor do we seek out abundance We seek out Jesus, or better yet, he seeks out us and once he has found us, and we have placed our faith in him, we have the freedom to live, to be content, no matter what goes on in our lives. And to use it for, to the, for the, the sanctification of ourselves, the, holiness, the building up of holiness in ourselves, and the good of everyone around us. And functionally what that means, over time, the more and more and more you become connected to Jesus and become a content person, you become a lower-maintenance person over time. Which is to say you need less in order to be content. You need less of what the world has to offer. You don't need strange and exotic things. You don't need more stuff. You don't need everyone's attention. You don't need the approval of other people. You don't need as much financial or physical security. You don't need as much power over other people. You just you need Jesus, and you know you're going to be okay because Jesus is going to be with you. Now, listen, that doesn't happen overnight. It's not like, like, it's like every other work of sanctification. That is, if you're new to church, that sanctification means like the building up of God's holiness in you. Okay? And that, all of those works of sanctification, you learn them. You don't just become them. You become justified before God, but then you work out your salvation in fear and trembling over a long period of time over the course of your entire life. And that graph, by the way, is not usually just straight up and to the right the whole way. There's usually some up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, but the trend line is going the right direction. And that, and that's the way this works too. Like, like, it doesn't mean you won't ever be discontent. If you just believe in Jesus, you won't ever be discontent. It means that you will work in your life, the more that you work to be integrated with Jesus and connected to Jesus, the more that over time you will become the kind of person who can be content in any situation. And so you can immerse yourself in the presence of Jesus. And there's all sorts of ways to do that. We talk about, I'm sure you talk about them all the time here, but like, it's things like reading your Bible and seeing what does the Word of God have to say to me? What is Jesus doing in my life? It is, it's through prayer. It is through uh, through communion with the Holy Spirit it's through c- the community of other Christians sitting around in a small group where you will be encouraged and exhorted and reminded of the gospel and you'll do all those things for other people as well. And so the more that you immerse yourself in the presence of Jesus in your life, little by little, you'll find that over time you need less to be content. Now the upshot of this is that it will produce in you Uh, The more you immerse yourself in the presence of Jesus and become naturally a more content person, it will produce in you things that you desire in your life, which is to say mainly you will become a person of love and a person of joy. And so I'll I'll talk about each of these, right? Um, First, contentment learned in Jesus will make you more loving. Another way to say this is it will expand your capacity for love. And so when, because when you're not a content person, a good bit of your time and energy is spent on worrying about yourself. Figuring out how to get, or need, get what you want or need, figuring out how to keep people at bay or, or, um, or in taking too much, or how to conserve your resources and create a life that's going to make you content. But as Jesus begins to work in you and you find yourself better able to, to be content, no matter how good things are or how bad things are, you have a freedom of time and of energy and of inner thought and focus on other things that people and other people and making their life better. And that focus of your attention for the good of other people is what we call love. And this is exactly what we see between the exchange between Paul and the Philippians. Paul is content in prison. And so he can use the time to write to the Philippians, to build them into, spirit, into them spiritually and connect with them. And likewise, the Christians in Philippi are content content with what they have, and yet with what they have in Jesus, such that they can support Paul financially and emotionally while he is in a Roman prison. And though he does not need their gifts, they are a source of immense encouragement to him. When we we become people who can be content with less, we are so enraptured with our relationship with Jesus that we don't require all the trappings of the world. We have a newfound surplus to spend on others. And so, of course, this applies to money, right? If you need less stuff to be content, then you have more disposable income to be generous with. You no longer feel like you need to hoard the things you have, but you can share them with others. And Nick's going to talk more about that next week because Paul's going to really get into that in the next few verses. But this is also true with things like your emotional well-being. If you don't need as much from other people emotionally, you have more to give emotionally to them. You don't have to be the one talking all the time. That it, right, you can actually care emotionally and then tangibly about the, their suffering and hardship and experience, and you won't mind sitting and listening to them or coming alongside them. It'll affect your work, things like your work, right? Because you'll become the kind of person who's working, who's not just working for a paycheck, trying to get through the week, but who has the capacity to view their work and their industry as a way to love and serve other people and produce something good in the world and for society. And then as we do that, and as we find contentment in a life lived with Jesus, we'll desire others to experience Jesus too so that they can experience the same contentment that we have that has so changed us, which will cause us to sacrifice for the sake of others hearing and believing the gospel. Right? So, so, and see how this works, right? Because becoming a love, more loving person is not the goal. The goal is to be united with Jesus, which will create contentment within you and will, then will produce love in turn. And in the end, isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Right? Don't you want to be a more loving person? I do. And so what this means on an individual level is you'll be able to do things like take care of your kids and change another diaper. This is the stage I'm in right now. Because you love them, or you'll clean up the dish that your roommate left out, rather than hold a grudge about it and just fume inside. Or you'll be able to take your wife on a date, even though you're exhausted from work. Or you'll be able to choose to be the kind of coworker to, to to be kind to the coworker who doesn't like you and is trying to undermine you. Because you have a greater capacity for love, because you're you can be content in all circumstances. That's on the individual level, but imagine what it looks like if an entire community of people can find contentment in Jesus alone and then have this surplus that can overflow to one another in love. Right? And this is the picture that Paul is painting for the local church. A whole bunch of people who are content with less that the world has to offer Because they have life with Jesus, they have an expanded capacity and hopefully over time a consistently growing expanded capacity to love each other in really practical ways so that they can, like, spend their time to take care of other people's kids, which is a crazy idea, right? Or use their emotional energy to sit with people who are suffering and cry with them and care care for them and bring them meals and listen to them. Or use their money to provide for tangible needs of other people. Or use their creativity to think of new ways to meet the needs of the people in the community and in society. Jesus has built his church to be the kind of place that has the capacity to do all of that and so much more. And each local church is an expression of that on the ground in the lives of real human beings. And so hopefully by the grace of God and by us attending to a spirit, the Spirit's work in our life, High Point Church can become and continue to be that kind of community of love. Because we're a community that is content with Jesus. If we've got Jesus, we're good. We don't need anything else. Okay, so first, contentment with Jesus will make you more loving. Second, contentment with Jesus will make you more joyful. Paul says, rejoice greatly in the Lord. He, or that he rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that the Philippians had shown his, their concern for him. Um, and this joy does not beca- come because he needed what they gave to him. Right? He makes that really clear. It's not like he needed their companionship or their resources. He was doing just fine, but their concern brought him joy anyway. Why? Well, we find out in the next few verses that Nick's going to preach on next week. But that Paul's joy is twofold. First, Paul is full of joy because he understands that as they have sacrificed for him, and that they've sacrificed for him, and Jesus looks on that sacrifice and credits that to them account. He's pleased to give them back everything and more. Right? So in, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Paul knows that the Philippians have stored for themselves up great treasure in heaven in their gift to him. And because he cares deeply about them and their well-being, their, their entire well-being, that brings him great joy. So Paul can say in verse 17, not, only, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Right? So and that's the first reason. The second reason that this brings Paul joy is that it reveals the friendship and the partnership in the gospel that Paul has with the Philippians. Paul's alone in prison, and though he does not need the encouragement, he's okay being in solitary confinement. What an encouragement it was for him to know that they're still working towards the same end that he is, that he's not alone in working towards the advancement of the gospel. They're doing gospel work together, even though from afar, it reveals this friendship with the Philippians that's not based on a shallow friendship of what they can get from one one another. Right? Sometimes friendship is based on that. But this friendship is not. It's a deep friendship based on, built on the fact that they both love Jesus and they're experiencing life with him and they're working together so that others might experience life with Jesus and that Jesus would be glorified, right? And that's an inc- incredible encouragement to him. So um, I experienced something similar to this when I was an intern at High Point 11 years ago, which is, uh, I think there's going to be a picture of that, which is just slightly embarrassing. But, um, right? but it was a huge encouragement for me. To come out here. Now, to know that there were a group of people so committed to the gospel of Jesus that they were concerned about me enough and wanted to do everything that they could to partner with me in the work of the gospel. Right? Listen, I didn't need high point church. I was probably gonna end up in ministry anyway. But it was incredible encouragement to me and has continued to be an incredible encouragement to me. Later, as I've watched High Point Church from afar and watched the intern program produce more great dividends in the kingdom outside of High Point. But likewise, hopefully for you, the fact that interns come here because they're so committed to the work of Jesus, they want to give their whole lives to it and be trained to do it better. And if they want to do it in the context of this local church, hopefully that's an immense encouragement to you. Not because you need the, the interns, right? Nobody need a 22-year-old Adam around here. I can guarantee you that. But because you're partners in the gospel. You're friends on something deeper than what each, you can get from each other. But what God is doing in you and through you and then out into the world as a result of you. And so as individuals and corporately as a local church, we find contentment in our life with Jesus. And then naturally we find joy as we work alongside one another to build deep friendships and relationships with other people, which applies to, like, for instance, the friendships you build with other churches here, which High Point I know has done in deep ways. And that joy will naturally well up in you more and more, even in difficult circumstances, and even down the road, if if High Point Church finds themselves in difficult circumstances. Contentment is not found. It is learned through uniting with Jesus, and it will produce in you love and joy in abundance. Henry VIII searched all his life, striving for that contentment, and he died a weary, broken, discontent man who never found it. But the tragedy of Henry's life was not that he never found contentment, is that it was right in front of him. And it's right in front of you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Immerse yourself in the presence of Jesus through the local church. And each one of you, at high, as each one of you at High Point Church do that, we, you will become a church that is content with Jesus and that can pour out that abundance to the world, become salt and light. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be people who are deeply content no matter what happens to us. We want to be people who know you and who, for whom you are enough. God, we want to be people that then you can use, that you can produce abundance and to use for the good of the people around us. Starting first with one another in the context of this local church, this community of Jesus, and then that overflows out to the city of Madison, the greater Christian community in the Madison area, and to our our non-Christian neighbors and friends and family and loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would produce that in us. We cannot produce it in ourselves. It's not hiding inside of us. We cannot achieve it by anything the world has to offer us. And so we beg you to make us content in Christ that we might find life that is truly life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.